as soon as I started seeing Ben and Chris getting excited about this music that I was so nervous about, that's when I started really getting confident in the record and, and looking into producers and I wanted to, to get more involved in the production side of things and I spoke to Dave Bottrell because I, like, you know, Captain Beefheart, King Crimson, knew that Bottrell had worked with King Crimson and Peter Gabriel, all this stuff, and just thought, you know, without making a progressive rock record, I want to learn something from someone who's worked with Robert Fripp. <laughs> Hello and welcome to Too Much of Not Enough, a Silverchair podcast. I'm your host, Daniel Hedger, and in this episode, I'll be talking to a very, very, very special guest. David Bottrell is a legendary producer, mixer, and engineer who has worked with everyone from Peter Gabriel and Rush to Tool, Dream Theatre, and Coheed and Cambria. He's also won three Grammys and an ARIA. For our purposes on this podcast, he is also the producer of the one and only Diorama. He also mixed Young Modern, and I was really keen to talk to him about that whole scenario as well. Now, we did mainly talk about Silverchair, and if that bothers you, please check the title of the podcast that you're listening to. But we did touch on his production approach in general and how he mixes, as well as confirming a story I'd heard about his work with Tool. So before we launch into my chat with David, let's just get some housekeeping out of the way. If you aren't already, please follow me on Instagram at Silverchair Podcast and Facebook at facebook.com slash Silverchair Podcast. You can also email me at silverchairpodcast at gmail.com. In fact, keep that email in mind because I am thinking about doing a mailbag and frequently asked questions episode. So feel free to send through your FAQs about the show, about the band, about me, about whatever. Also, if you are somehow listening to this without being subscribed, please subscribe. And while you're at it, I'd love for you to review the show in Apple Podcasts and rate it five stars. If other podcast apps have review options, that would be great too. I know the one I personally use, Overcast, doesn't have that, but others might. I know it's slightly more work to do a review, but it really helps other people find the show. So with all that out of the way, let's get to my conversation with David Bottrell. Welcome, David Bottrell. Uh, thank you so much for coming on the show. It's my great pleasure. I've been looking forward to, to chatting to you. I, you know, in the back of my head, I, I kind of thought maybe we'd be able to to get these kind of things happening. Um, where are you calling from today? You, I live in Toronto, Ontario, Canada. But you're in, so you're in Eastern Standard Time. I just was yes. trying to make sure that we had the time difference exactly right. Yep, it's Eastern Standard Time. Great. So, uh, so how's everything going up there with, uh, are you in lockdown? How, how are things panning out up there? 
things have begun to open up a little bit more because uh, we managed to yep. do pretty well with the uh, um, uh, flattening of the curve, as they call it. Uh, so, yeah. yeah, we've we've managed to do okay. Uh, um, there's new cases, and there are still some deaths, which is very sad. But yeah. all in all, I think we've managed to at least get some kind of control over it. So we're all uh, beginning to reopen now. Restaurants are opening in uh, um, you know, sort of limited ways. And we're all still social distancing and wearing masks, but uh, everybody's – uh, pretty much on board. There are a few people that maybe are a little bit um, reticent for for whatever reason to wear masks, but for the most part, I see people out in the streets and they're all wearing masks. And uh, you know, I wear my mask and I don't uh, congregate in large groups of people. I'm actually going to a a show on Thursday night where I mix the sound for a concert film. And they're showing it at this uh, little place called Ontario Place, which is near where I live. But, I, of course, I have to drive because it's a drive-in because everybody's going in their cars. And we're all going to sit right. in our cars and watch the concert film. See, that's a great idea. Yeah. Yeah, it should be fun. Gee, I, I can't wait till that kind of happens here, like where I'm in. So if, just so you know, I'm in Melbourne, which is uh, we've gone in back into a hard lockdown. Oh, really? Um, because we, we had a, a second wave of cases. Oh dear. Um, so the rest of Australia has actually done very well, and and we were doing well, and then um, it's the numbers peaked again. So we've we've gone all back into uh, uh, stage four, as they call it. For oh the dear. Next six. I'm we're sorry about to hear that. Through. Oh I, yeah, anything to uh, to bring the cases down, and then we'll be right back on track, which we are. We're we're we're, we're trending down now again. Yeah. So just another few weeks. Good. Good. Anyway, <laughs> I mean, it's coming back everywhere, even even over in New Zealand, right? So, yeah, yeah. Well, and, and we think that might have been something to do with an Australian. So we, we <laughs> oh, <laughs> oops. So anyway, um, so for the purposes of this podcast, obviously, I want to talk to you about your work with Silverchair, but I just should get out uh, right at the top that you know you, you've done a lot of great work and you've mixed and produced with some of my favorite. Uh, artists like you produced my favorite Coheed and Cambria album or mix on it. I mixed that Dream record. Album, I mixed that Tool record. album. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. And uh, Grammys and Arias. And so I'm, I'm really stoked. Yeah, I'm still waiting for my Aria to come. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's I've not arrived. Do you, do you think know. Daniel might've stolen it? Because uh, <laughs> I, I believe he, he picked up the award at the, on the night. Did he? Oh, okay. Uh, who knows? Never mind. Because that was for Diorama, wasn't it? I, I believe so. You know what? I, I wasn't there. I didn't, you know, Watto didn't give me all the information, I don't think. So uh, anyway, I, I'm not I'm not angry, but I, it's funny. I, it would be great. It'd be nice to, you know. No, because it's funny because it's a very spiky looking uh, award if you've ever seen them. I, I've never actually seen them, no. It's basically a pyramid with a very sharp point. Oh, okay. Yeah. It's... Yeah, it's funny because uh, I spoke to Nick Lornay on this show, and um, yeah, I listened to that. He also had his. He also won a production aria for um, from a Silverchair album, and um, he he wasn't there to pick it up either. And Daniel collected it, so maybe there's just a whole lot of extra arias in Daniel's house. <laughs> you know what? Me and Nick are going to have to go over to Daniel's house and just go, "Hey, <laughs> <laughs> fantastic!" So, how did you come to work on Diorama? What was that process like? Well, so. Uh, 
my uh, I was contacted by Daniel and by John Watson, uh, and they uh, I had done some projects I think that they liked, so uh, they called me up and they they wanted to make a record. So we had a meeting in a little breakfast place in Beverly Hills. And Daniel told me his story and told me what he wanted to do. And uh, I was fascinated by his uh, sort of knowledge of, of music and knowledge of um, the kind of record that he wanted to make. And so, you know, once once we had that long discussion and I, I think we hit it off fairly well, I really enjoyed his company and I thought Watto was really great. I don't, you know, I didn't know either of them beforehand. Um, but they 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 charmed me and they sold me on the project. So after that after that breakfast, I was I was fully on board if if they were to have me. So it was a really it was a really nice organic way to do it. We just met and became friends. How familiar were you with uh, Silverchair's previous work at the time? Um, I would say uh, enough to know that some of the the more uh, popular material that he'd written, I had yep. heard. Um, I hadn't followed the entire arc of his career, uh, but I went back uh, when, after we had that meeting and I, I did have a listen to the things and I, I enjoyed the arc actually. I thought it was a really interesting progression from the beginnings of his career to, uh, where he wanted to go as he described in that meeting. Um, so I, I'd say at the beginning, I knew that I knew who they were, of course, and I'd heard some of the songs, um, uh, mostly the singles, uh, and some other things, but, um, I thought he was really, really talented, and uh, and so you know when he he called me up and you know when you're a producer it's it's funny I find at least for me other producers are probably better at this than me, but I find that it's really hard for me to uh, keep up with everything that's going on, and I tend to when people say well what are you listening to and I have to answer it's usually demos of bands <laughs> that send me stuff to listen to because. You know, sort of if, if I if I've been working on something all day long, often when I go home in a car, I'll be listening to talk radio because um, or or versions of the you know mix we've done that day. Uh, so I, I, I had known, like I said, I had known his material, but not uh, intensively. That might be even a, um, a good thing for a producer to to not necessarily have other people's music uh maybe you know blocking your your approach to the band you're working with at the time yes i think i do like to listen to certain things for inspiration and and for pleasure uh but i do find that when i'm involved in a project i tend to get quite immersed in it and it's actually a little bit more difficult for me to listen to too many other things at the same time uh i do get a little confused my brain is only so big is that kind of the production formula when you're working with a with an artist? Do you have uh, do you have sort of a approach that you always bring to an artist, or do they kind of dictate how that relationship goes? Uh, as far as a production style or technique, I think I'd like to I'd like to believe that I'm flexible and I will uh, modify the things that I do to each individual artist. Obviously, I have techniques that I use and approaches that I like, but they don't always work with every artist. So, you know, I, I try to do a collaborative process with the artist so that when I'm working with them, 
we're we're on the same sort of page as to how we want to go forwards with any any particular idea or um, uh, arrangement or something like that. Um, you know, like 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 anybody, as you get older, you you fall into habits. Some of which are good, some of which are bad. Uh, I don't mind being forced out of those habits, but I also know that when somebody's asking me to do something, certain techniques have worked for me in the past and I'll, I'll try to use them again if I think they're appropriate. Yeah. So when you came to work on Diorama, that, that probably, you know, uh, Daniel by then was kind of, um, he was growing as a songwriter and he was getting more and more ambitious and, and sort of like, I think he met you at the right moment to be able to sort of bring those things to life a bit. Do you think you were instrumental in helping bring out some of those ideas that might have been a bit hard to, uh, you know, realize? Well, I think that uh, maybe because I had spent part of my career doing more complex music than than sort of top 40 music, if you will, uh, it gave me a certain skill set to be able to help people who are trying to do something uh, complex and unusual to realize their their vision. Um, you know, the the kind of artists that I'd work with, with, you know, the Peter Gabriels and the King Crimson and the Tools where, you know, there's a lot going on and you have to find ways to make every part fit together. And I think that because I had developed the ability to do that, that when Daniel wanted to do this record, which essentially was trying to be, you know, in a way his sort of magnum opus or his his project that really was the the culmination of a vision he'd had from from very young, that maybe I was, you know, one of the potential right people to be able to help him uh, achieve that because I had I had a uh, an ability or I had I had done projects that in the past had been complex and been able to fit things together. And I think also that talks that says something about your mixing ability. Like you are known as a as not just a great producer, but a great mixer. Well, and you. and no, you're welcome. The, and what I noticed listening back, um, just for the diorama episodes that I've just released, listening back to the album, there's you notice things that you didn't realize that were there until you listen out for it. Like there's a tambourine in without you, and. When you when someone says there's a tambourine there and you listen for it, you can hear it. You sort of how do you sort of balance that with you know keeping a rock band and then also an orchestra and how do you keep everything in the same sort of sonic space without letting one overpower the other? Well, I think it's quite a challenge to do that, uh, and the way that I I approach it is in in a couple of ways. Um, I'd use there's, there's a well-known technique of um, when things are important, they step to the front of the stage, and when they're not, they step to the back of the stage. So when I'm mixing something and something is in the mix, but it needs to make its appearance known, then I'll bring it forwards. Uh, and then when it's right. just support, then I'll take it back. Um, the other approach that I try to do when I'm mixing is is sort of mix in a, in a – more three-dimensional sphere. So instead of just the left-right stereo image, and this is not just me, other people do the same thing, but I try to think of it in that it's not just left and right, but it's also front and back. And that requires sort of different ambiences on certain things and then other things being more dry or uh, with less 
room ambience or, or delay or reverb on it. So I try to think of things in, in sort of a three-dimensional space rather than a, a two-dimensional and left-to-right space. I'm not the only one who does this, but uh, that's how I try and fit together complex music that has a, a multitude of instruments and voices and things playing and try to make sure that they're all um, available when you want to listen to them. Yeah, that's really interesting because then you can definitely hear that that's what's going on. Um, and I suppose the only time that's not happening on diorama maybe is the vocals where it's very direct and compressed and because you want, especially for songs that are so complicated, you want there to be a through line in the, in the vocal, which is at least that's the impression I get from the way that, that the, the production sounds to me. W- would that be accurate? When you have vocal mu- vocal-driven music, uh, regardless of, of all of the, the atmosphere around it, the vocal is the most important thing. So you're right. That has to be the, the common element through everything. And that shouldn't be, uh, superseded by anything or swamped by anything. But, um, you know, I do try to build things in and around and carve space for it with, you know, equalization and, and compression and build things around the voice. But I try to make sure that that is sort of the prominent instrument. In, in the music, if it's a vocal driven song, uh, which Daniel's music usually is. I mean, it's all, it's, it's very, uh, um, well constructed in all the elements that are in there, but you know, he's still singing his song. He's still trying to tell the story and you can't lose the story for the window dressing. Yeah. And I think, uh, I don't know if, the, I mean, I, I feel like on Diorama, you've got, um, like a song like One Way Mule, which I feel is maybe helped by your you're working with Tool because it's very dynamic that it's a very super melodic song, but the low end is so heavy. Um, but the the contrast between the verses and the choruses and his vocals is, is very stark um, in a good way. And so it, 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 it can be melodic vocally, but still have that heaviness underneath um, in a dynamic way. Yeah, with a song like that, I, I tried to, uh, as much as I could, to try to build the power in the in the rhythm section of that. You know, Ben, great drummer, and, and Chris, great bass player. They 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 kind of, you know, built the the foundations of that song. And you know, when I was going to mix that, that became the thing that was the the driving engine behind it. And Daniel would sit on top with the vocals and the guitars and things like that. But the, for me, the the with songs like that, particularly the the foundation is is really important. And if the foundation isn't strong, for me, the whole building falls over. So that's you know you you, you try to build a track like that from the ground up. And, and you recorded uh, you recorded rhythm tracks live essentially is that correct yep yeah we all went in we went into 301 and ben was in the drum room and you know daniel was out out in the room and uh then we did all the overdubs with daniel basically you know any of the guitars and vocals uh the guitars anyway were in uh in in the control room with amps there and cabinets out in the other room so we could blast it without it you know being crazy and and uh when it came to vocals I mean, this time around on Diorama, compared to Neon Borum especially, there's a lot more vocal harmonies. And I imagine that was something Daniel brought to the table. But did you, was there like a a process of whittling down which harmonies to use? Or did he sort of have an idea in his head that that's what, what he wanted to do? 
As far as harmonies go, I think he had most of the ideas. I might have come up with a few here and there. But, you know, Daniel's incredibly talented and incredibly uh, musically adept. So, you know, he would have he would have had an idea of what harmonies he wanted to sing on it. And if things weren't working, we might have had some arguments over, you know, some of the more dissonant ones he wanted to try. But, uh, yeah. you know, uh, the, it all it all it all came together, I think. Um, he, uh, you know, he Daniel's an, an amazing musical mind, I think. And um as I know, I, I did listen to your other podcast with Nick, and I completely agree that he's able to hear a multitude of, of harmony uh, where where most people can't. And so yeah. he suffers from, I think, a little bit of the uh, the um, sophistication problem, where he can hear that and and he can he can uh, can can create it and uh, without any problem hear the things that he wants to hear in it. To everybody else, if you if you don't have it uh, if you don't have it mixed just right, it just becomes a muddy mess. Um, so, right. like difficult harmonies are are okay. I, I I enjoy them, and I enjoy a cluster of voices doing things. But when you have that, you really have to carve space for each one and make sure that they they blend well, but also can can stand individually. So it, it's a real challenge. But again, he 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 came up with them, and you know, or we came up with them together, maybe in some instances. But he, you know, he he's he's only trying to push himself musically into new directions and and new, um, you know, for him. I think standard standardization of what he does. I think he gets bored quite quickly, and so yeah. he wants to he wants to challenge himself. And he wants to be inspired by new things. So. Like any musician does that. I mean, Peter Gabriel was exactly the same. It's frustrating to listen to because you'd have something you think was really good and people would be like, yeah, but I've kind of heard that before. I need to do something different. <laughs> so it's like, okay, well, we'll try something different then, you know. But, uh, and Daniel's Daniel's very similar in that. You know, it's like, well, I've heard that harmony before. I don't want to just th- do thirds and fifths. I'd like to do sixths or something else. You know, so uh, it, it was it was really fun. I mean, that record for me was really a real pleasure and and fun to work on and and musically challenging and sort of exciting exciting to do so um all of the challenges that were there in trying to fit things together uh, you know might have been might have been um fraught at the time but i i look back at it with great fondness and i really uh, i really am glad that that i was a part of it oh i, I don't think i'm telling any secrets that that's my favorite silverchair album um so yeah, thank you very much for your work. <laughs> oh, you're very welcome. So, what, did you was how did the songs evolve for for Diorama? What, did he, did he sort of play them for you acoustically? Did you hear demos? Uh, when he when we decided eventually to work together, Daniel sent me a bunch of demos, or John sent me a bunch of the demos that were there. It wasn't all of them. Um, I don't think uh, uh, without you wasn't there. For example, um, Greatest View was there, of course, and and Tuna was there. Tuna is the one that really, really um, uh, caught my ear and, and sort of pulled me into the record because I thought this is a real, this is a real. Uh, I mean, this is going to be a big meal. This song, yeah. and and when I heard it on piano, and and I was stunned to find out that Daniel had never played piano before, but he had bought a piano or had been given a piano or something in his house. And 
he wrote Tuna on it, which is a yeah. really, really complex song. Now, we got Paul Mack to play it because Paul Mack is a great piano player on the record, but Daniel wrote it. And all of those string parts and all the all the all the musical orchestral parts that uh, Van Dyke uh, arranged for it came out of that piano, the original piano. Exactly, like, it all exactly. came from that. So, as as wonderful as as an arranger and composer that Van Dyke is, he just took the cues from Daniel from that song. So, uh, sorry, I'm being very long winded, but so they nope. they sent they sent me the demos. And I, I listened and I thought, well, this is really fascinating, all, all of this music. It was great. Um, and then we talked about them and I, I charted them out and I, I uh, you know, had my, what I do when I, when I take on a record, I'll listen to the demos, I'll chart them out, look at the arrangements, say, well, do these work or could they be improved or, you know, what can I bring to this? So I, I would call Daniel and say, well, I think this, could you try the song like this or like that, you know? And he might, you know, try that in rehearsal. And then we, then I came over to uh, Australia and went to Newcastle. And uh, we sat in, in a rehearsal place and we rehearsed there for, I think, golly, it was probably two to three weeks at least. And we'd go in every day and we'd play through some of the songs and work on the arrangements. And I would say, well, you know, this bit's really good. Why don't you try doing it one more time? <laughs> or, or this bit's not really helping the song. Why don't you take it out? Or, you know, things like that. And we'd hack through the songs and, and get to the point where we're all comfortable what we're going to play in the studio and then headed into 301. So that sort of natural process for me, which is a normal one. Uh, you get the demos, you talk to the band, you get into rehearsal, hash things out and you know you you get to know them at the same time while you're doing that you get to know each other how you work how, how you are as a person um and you know then you go then you then you're able to go into the studio with a um an amount of confidence that you know what you're doing and you, you're 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 able to you know, you know you have a vision that's clear and you know without with um you know, talented engineers like Anton and, you know, a producer and a band that can play really well, like these guys can, and, and you can, you know, knock out something with, with confidence so that it's not, you're not going into a studio. It's like, Oh, I don't know what to do today. I don't know what we're going to do. You know? <laughs> so it's, uh, <laughs> um, yeah, that's sort of the general process. I like to go into a studio with kind of knowing about 80% of what we're going to do, uh, leaving 20% for sort of creative inspiration. But, uh, yeah, I like to, I like to go into a studio knowing the bulk of what we're going to do. And there's no writing in the studio after that initial rehearsal period. Well, I mean, it depends on what you consider writing, you know, there, there are, there are, you know, melodic changes, there are maybe, um, you know, solo changes, but as far as structural and chordal, um, arrangement of the song, I like to make sure that that's at least 80%. 80% there. And if things are not working in a certain song, by the time you're going into the studio, you can then maybe spend that time, you know, any extra time to work on that. But, you know, I hate, I hate waste and I hate wasting time and I hate wasting, you know, everybody's, everybody's time and resources because you don't know what you're doing going into something, you know, yeah. in the old days when, you know, you get thrown million dollars to go make a record. Sure. Go into the studio and use it as your rehearsal and recording space. That's great. You know, these days, and even then, you know, it wasn't the case. You can't just go in and blow, you know, so much money on something, uh, you know, without, without having consequences. And, and it usually comes at the expense of the band, 
right? The record company doesn't, doesn't, you know, that they write things off the band just end up being in debt all the time. So I'd rather not yeah. blow a band's money all the time, even though they don't think it's their money. They think, oh, well, we've got an advance. Like, yeah, but you owe yeah. that to the label. <laughs> You'll have to pay that back before you can get, see any money. So, you know, I try to be as efficient as I can whilst still uh, allowing for creativity in the studio. Yeah, definitely. I, and I, there's, I think there's footage of you with Daniel sort of working out the the structure of after all these years at his, well, he's at the piano. There was something you were doing with him uh, to sort of make, maybe streamline the song. Is, and that would have been during the rehearsals? Uh, if there was a piano, it was probably at 301, I suspect. So we might have left after all these years a little bit to, to that, um, uh, to that time because it wasn't as, it wasn't as complex a song uh, as the others. So maybe because we were focusing things on like things like greatest view or, or tuna or things like that, that were more, that needed a lot of um, uh, clarity in how we were going to do them. Whereas after all these years was, I mean, it's a beautiful song and I love that song, but it wasn't as complex to do. It wasn't as complex to work out. So if we thought, well, we have this amount of time to work on the rehearsals and bring, you know, this record, get ready to go in the studio. If we haven't finished exactly what we're going to do with after all these years, then we can go in and sit at the piano and, and work on an arrangement. I probably, it was probably something that I did that I came up with that, that I thought, oh, you know, what if we tried this, you know, and did that at, at some point. I may have sat down at the piano one morning and gone, hey, wait a minute, what do we do, you know? And so I brought, maybe brought Daniel and said, hey, what about this? Or he's maybe yeah. he did the same thing. I'm not sure which one, but something like that might have happened um it's a long time ago so i'm not going to remember everything no no uh so I, when you, you say you were focusing on certain songs uh were the songs that van dyke worked on and larry Mulbrick for that matter were they did you have to focus on them more just because they were going to be a bigger production or how, how did you work out which songs needed extra time well, with the the songs that were being worked on by the the string arrangers, both Larry Mahobrak and uh, Van Dyke Parks, that they they needed to be uh, their arrangement needed to be sorted uh, before they were going to come. So we, absolutely, we had to focus on them to make sure that when they came, uh, the arrangements were as they knew them. We, we did, you know, we we sent. I'm sure we sent Tuna a few times back and forth to Van Dyke to make sure that he had the arrangement uh, exactly if we had changed anything. But that's that's really important, especially when you've got an orchestra coming in. You know, the orchestras don't like changes no. in the middle of things. So, you know, not, not that they, they don't usually come in knowing the score. It's just written down for them. But it's so much easier if the arranger uh, can actually say, okay, here's the score and here's where it's going. And if we, we if he had come over, all the way from America, we'd be like, oh yeah, by the way, we took this eight bars out of that, out of this eight bars here. You know, it would be very, it would be very challenging him for him to then have to copy score or do anything. It's, it's quite a nightmare when it comes to orchestras. So you want to have it pretty much, uh, pretty much in place before they, pardon me, before they come. So yeah, we worked hard on those ones to make sure the arrangements were set before they came. And I just want to say, you said earlier that that uh, Van Dyke drew out 
his arrangements from Paul's piano. And I brought up that exact point in, um, in well, it was, it was actually Daniel's, that- it was Daniel's piano. Daniel played it. Oh, yeah, sorry. So Daniel, Daniel wrote the whole part and Van Dyke took it from there. And then Paul played it. Paul played Daniel's part. He just played it better because Daniel, not that he's not, he's probably a great piano player now. Right. But at the time, I think he'd only played, he, he, he wasn't a, a natural piano player at the time and he'd just gotten the piano. So he'd practiced and he'd written this amazing thing, but even he knew he's like, okay, yeah, but on the record, I want a great piano player to play this because not only can he play it right, but he can emote it properly. And there can be a lot of um, articulation that Daniel just didn't have the years of playing skill to be able to do. So, yeah. Know. Sorry, excuse me. That, that, that's what I meant, that, that, um, that Van Dyke was able to hear the sort of inherent counter melodies and everything in those parts. Yes, and, exactly. You know, that, and that's, I guess, the sign of a great arranger. Yes, absolutely. No, he took that um, he took that uh, uh, that piano part and just arranged the whole thing. Now he uh, he did additions and flourishes and things to it and added things to it, but the basis of that orchestral part was from the the, the piano that Daniel had written, which is pretty incredible. It was amazing. I, I was I was I was stunned to find out. I tell you that that he wasn't you know that, that he hadn't played piano very much before and had written this thing. Yeah, it was extraordinary. So, we, uh, speaking of Van Dyke, you also were able to. Uh, uh, I suppose you weren't there directly with Van Dyke, but when you came to work on Young Modern, sort of towards the end of the process, uh, how, do, do you do you have a memory of of how that came about? Um, so, uh, with Young Modern, um, I got a call again from John, and he told me a little bit of the story that had gone on uh, in the production of that record. In that there was, he seemed to think that there were sort of three very talented, strong characters uh, working on the production of that record. And it just ended up being a sort of push-pull conflict. And they needed somebody with fresh ears, I think, just to come in and kind of help cross the finish line and, and, you know, um, maybe remove some things that, that weren't working and, and keep the things that were, um, you know, I was, uh, as, as, um, I was very happy to get an opportunity to work with Daniel again, because I, I really enjoyed his company. I thought he was very talented musically. And I thought, you know, I'll, I, I'd be happy, I'd happily work with him at any time. So when John called and, he, and I said, yeah, sure, you know, I can help out. What do you want me to do? And then it was, well, can you do this or can you do that? And it just ended up being, why don't you mix the record and why don't you, t- you know, sort of take over from, from Nick who had um, been producing the record before. And, you know, he's, he's got another project he wants to work on and can you just mix this record? So it's great. Sure. No problem. Um, it came to me and there was a lot of stuff going on. Um, I think before it got to me, I think Daniel had spent a little bit of time himself sort of weeding it out. But even so, when it got to me, it was still quite a, a busy and somewhat complex thing. Um, and, you know, I, I, I would try to, uh, in the mixing process, say, well, you know, you, you've got seven of these things and seven of these melodies. Can you, can you, you know, maybe lose one of them or lose two of them or something <laughs> along that line? And he would say yes. And then he would say no. And then, and <laughs> then we, you know, we ended up getting to the end. And I think it's, it's, I like that record. I think that we managed to, to achieve something from it in the end. Um, but I think, you know, in the end, it probably does suffer from 
too many great ideas a little bit. And right. I, I'm I'm a fan of I'm a fan of complexity. I, I really am. I really enjoy it when it when it dances well together. Um, but when one thing's you know dancing a pogo and the other thing's dancing a waltz, sometimes you might want to uh, see what your priority is there. Yeah, I mean, I think to your credit, maybe with the mixing, I think that album ha- does have, I think, a bit of a clarity, um, especially especially in the. I, I kind of think of it as their power trio album. You know, they 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 actually sound like a band again. Not that they didn't ever sound like a band, but you can tell that it's three guys playing together. Which I, I think I don't you know if you drew that out or if Nick did, but. <laughs> I, I, yeah, I I don't think that that's a bad album at all. I think it's a great album. Oh, I, I wasn't saying it's a bad album. I like the album too. I think it's good, and I think that we managed to uh, we managed to achieve getting the clarity in that. And maybe yeah. that's why they brought me in because I kind of that's that's something I work very hard on is getting clarity out of out of records. I spend a lot of time yes, doing records that have are very busy and with a lot going on, and so I sort of honed a skill a little bit in in being able to get clarity. Um, uh, I just think that maybe, uh, maybe musically, there was a vision that that Daniel had, and I'm I'm not 100 percent sure that the entirety of that vision was was achieved. Um, you know, in English Garden, that that song particularly that that had like I can hear something in that that there's 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 an amazing sort of thing in there, and I don't know that in the end the entire vision for that song was achieved. Yeah. And I suppose, so I, I guess that that only ended up as a demo in the end, um, or sorry, it didn't end up on the, on the album, um, properly. Right. So, so were you even coming in as the mixer, were you saying this song should be on, should shouldn't be on or was that already was the track listing already set by then no i would have i would have i would have mixed it uh, and i would have done all that i think that i i might have had a, a an opinion on that i honestly don't remember um so it's possible i don't know how much you know my influence would be over daniel in that way but uh you know daniel has a way of daniel has a way of of um like saying yes yes and then saying no no, uh, like he's, he's a wonderful, wonderful human being. I, I adore him. Um, and sometimes I think he just, I guess, I don't know what it is. Maybe the, it's not the confidence, but I think he likes to, he likes to please people, likes to be, likes people to be happy. So when you say something, it's like, yeah, yeah, that's good. Okay. Yeah. We'll do that. Or I'll do that or whatever. And then, but if it's not something that he really wants to do, then he struggles with it. And then he goes, oh no, I don't really want to do <laughs> and and I'd I'd rather in a way like him be like you know what screw you Dave I want to do this <laughs> and we're doing this it's like okay like I can deal with that I, you know it's fine I don't mind that but yeah. you know I mean at the end of the day I'm just one opinion in the room right and and I say this with every band it's like I'm one opinion now I might have a certain amount of experience with that opinion but if you feel really strongly about something then then you should go for it I you know I will have an opinion and I will fight for what I believe in on any project that I'm working on but at the end of the day my name's not at the top of it right yeah theirs is the band is and and the writer is and if if this is your thing and your vision and you'll die on that hill then more power to you you know, I, I, I'm, I'm happy to, to, uh, kind of roll, roll with it. 
because you know I don't have to suffer the consequences of the decision that that's made as much as the artist does. And the artist has to go out and play it every night, right? The artist has to feel confident that that's what they really wanted to do. So I, I support artists that way. I argue with them and I'll fight with them. <laughs> but at the end of the day, this is their thing. So, you know, die on that hill. <laughs> so, so coming into uh, Young Modern and not having worked with them, obviously, since Diorama, how did you see uh, Daniel's songwriting had evolved or what, what did you think of the new batch of songs you were, you were sort of um, given? I thought that his songwriting had really grown. Um, but I thought that between every record, I, you know, he's exploring new things. He's exploring new uh, approaches to songwriting. Um, some some of it worked really well for me, and there there were things that that didn't work as well. But you know, like always, Daniel was pushing himself, and he was he was trying new things and new approaches. So I, I applauded the fact that he was, you know, expanding what he would like to think could be acceptable as sort of commercial or or, or um, popular music. Um, you know, I, I obviously when I, when I dive into a record like Diorama, I become very close to it and, you know, sort of, I live it when I'm hired to mix a record, there's a little bit more of a distance for me just because, you know, I haven't spent the hours and hours and hours, uh, working on each individual part, which is, you know, both a blessing and a curse, right? I, I, that's a blessing in that, well, I don't have any, any attachment to anything. So I'll say, well, I think this should go because I don't think it works very well. And I haven't spent the seven hours to record it, right? Whereas I can see that when you're recording an album and you're, you're working on something and you come up with this thing and you spend all this time doing it, you want to fight for it because you believe that it was the right thing to do. Um, as a, as a mixer, you come in and, and you can be far more objective on what you think is working musically and what you think is not working musically. So, uh, but, you know, I enjoyed the songs. I thought they were great. I enjoyed working on them. I enjoyed mixing them. Um, it was, again, a, a pleasurable experience. I, 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 uh, I have a habit of, I guess, attracting to myself people that are, um, I guess people would call them challenging artists or, or artists that, that <laughs> push boundaries. But that's, you know, I, I, never, I never have a problem with these people. Like they never uh, – I, I never seem to experience the same amount of anxiety that other people seem to do with these artists. And I think it's mainly because I come at every project that I do with a, a high degree of respect for the artist that I'm working with. Otherwise, I wouldn't go do the project. So I come at it with respect and, and treat them with respect and try to work with them on something rather than impose what would be my will on it. Um, I try to be uh, uh, more collaborative than uh, dictatorial on a project. So, um, yeah. So I, I uh, in a long winded answer again, which I seem to do a lot, yeah, that's fine. Uh, I really enjoyed the music and I, I looked forward to working on it. Uh, when John called in whatever capacity they wanted it to me to do, I thought maybe they just wanted me to help edit them down or, or try and see what would work, but we ended up mixing the record and I was, I was very pleased with it at the end. Well, and I think that says something about you personally and temperamentally that people want to work with you, you know, both because they get respect as an artist. In fact, I think one of the things that they, the band has said, uh, you know, after the, after Diorama in particular, that they liked working with you because you, you didn't treat them like they were just kids who had these crazy ideas. You were like, okay, this is musically 
interesting. Let's let's you know let's do it rather than people who thought you know Daniel didn't know what he was talking about. Well, I think that if if you look at the progression of Daniel's career and you listen to the albums that he'd done, then you'd be a fool to say that he didn't know what he was doing or that he didn't know what he wanted to do. Oh, you know? of course. So I, I think I, I can discount that that attitude from anybody right away because that just means you're not listening to what he's doing. Um, so, you know, and their age kind of age of any artist is really irrelevant to me. If they're, if they're switched on and they know what they're doing and they're, uh, you know, good writers, it doesn't really matter how old they are. Sure. They might have not have as, as life experience, uh, that I do or that, or that somebody else might have, but it doesn't matter. You know, they, they've had some experiences and, and if you're the right kind of producer, or not the right kind of producer, that's wrong to say. If, if you're a good fit for, as a producer for that, then, you will complement and and help educate um, those writers and use your experience to help them grow as writers. That, that's that's what you know. I strive to do with with any project. I think the, the 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 most gratifying thing I can hear from an artist that I've worked with is you know at the end of the project that they say, "Well, I think I'm a better musician. I think I'm a better writer for having worked with you." I mean, that's 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 really gratifying, and that. That that means that says to me that at least I've done part of my job. You know, I, I might not have made something that you know sells twenty million records, but I've helped a writer to grow or a musician to grow. Yeah, and I mean, uh, you know, chronological age is one thing, uh, but they were also on their fourth album. So in terms of uh, age as a band, they were just as experienced as I guess Tool were at the time, even. Well, I mean, the, you do get a certain level of experience by how much live performance you do, and that's purely time. You can't you can't um, replicate that without just playing show after show after show. So there's a there's certain level of experience that you get by playing a lot of live shows. But as you know, as far as recording goes, yeah, they they would have had as much experience. Yeah. So um, I, I, I saw you uh, did another interview a couple of years ago where you, you talked about uh, you know, turning off the lights in the studio and, and shining a lamp around when Daniel was doing a guitar solo. Was that kind of like a regular thing to keep the mood light, like a little bit of a prank? How Was that kind of one of your production techniques? I think it was probably more of a prank than a production technique, but it, it worked, <laughs> you know. Yeah. I, I'm I'm sort of reactionary as a producer, so I will I will do things like, you know, when some when a, a musician is playing and they're looking for a part, I'll I'll dive down into their pedals and start messing around and turning knobs and turning things on and off. For that one he wanted to play a solo and I thought, well, you know, it needs kind of kind of a live feeling to it. So I just got an angle poise lamp and stuck it up between his legs and <laughs> flashed it around <laughs> in his face while he was playing. It was more of it was more for fun than anything, but it had a reaction. And he loved it. He, he it felt really good to him. So I just kept doing it. Was that? Do you know what solo that would have been on? I don't remember. Lever maybe or yeah, Lever. That was that was when I heard you tell that Sarah. That's the one I I sort of went to. Yeah, I think it probably he's got a couple of good ones. Yeah, on that album. Yeah, yeah. It was likely something like that. It was a, it was more of a lighter, so it wasn't it wouldn't have been in tune or it wouldn't have been no. in no. You know, something, but. Yeah, like likely lever. There's a story. Uh, I don't know. I don't know if this is verified anywhere. There, is is it true that when you were working with Tool, um, Adam Jones showed you uh, Frog Stomp, 
and uh, f- and to reference the guitar tone. Have you have you heard that story, or is that true? That's very true. Yep. Wow. Yep. That's amazing. Yeah, he did. He 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 um he he brought it out at one point and and said, "Listen to this. I'm just I'm curious about this guitar sound." I mean, Adam has his sound, right? It's it's yeah. very specific to what he does, but he he liked the sound on on Frog Stomp, and he wanted me to reference it. So that's 100 percent true. Fantastic. That's good to hear because sometimes you you know you read these things or you remember hearing something, and and you you know very rarely get the opportunity to um, <laughs> ask to the ask horse's the mouth. Horse. <laughs> yeah. So who who, to, who told you that? Do you, do you remember one of the silver chair biographies? Oh yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, yeah. The, the Rolling Stone journalist Jeff Apter. He's written. Oh two. yeah, Jeff. Sure. Yep, I've spoken with Jeff. Yeah, or maybe that's how he. Uh, maybe that's you told him and he wrote it in the book and I read it. Quite possible. Quite possible. So having worked with all these, uh, as you say, a lot of uh, complex albums and, and artists, um, you know, like Dream Theater, Coheed and Cambria, Tool, Peter Gabriel, how, not just in terms of complexity, but how did Silverchair and Daniel as a songwriter sort of compare in terms of just as artists? I know that's probably not an easy question. Um, well, how do you? It can you know, be an easy question. I mean, equal quality, different styles. Right. Right. He's 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 a he's a great writer. He's a he's you know I I I, I don't I don't use this very often, but the musical genius title it, it actually applies. He is he's quite a musical genius, and so his writing you know, along the various stages of his career as it grew, just got better and better. But he was always a great writer. And, you know, from the start, from when he got, he started to be, you know, hone his craft, he was a great writer. Stylistically, he he just, he he's explored a lot of different things. So, you know, both in, in, you know, style and complexity. So, you know, I would, I would say I was, I was impressed as much to work with him as I have been with any artist, I'd say. Well, that is a great answer, and and I agree. Yeah, that's and something that Nick said as well. It's it's the talent recognizes talent. Well, Nick is a very smart guy and a great producer. <laughs> of course, he would recognize, you know, yeah. the the abilities of somebody like Daniel and and the the the, the skill. Is there anything you ever get uh, you you don't get asked about that uh, production wise, or because I the I don't know if you've listened to any of the other episodes. I know you're very busy. But sort of my approach to Silverchair on this podcast has just been to look at it from a musical perspective, which especially in North America, they, they might not have gotten the, uh, the credit uh, that they probably deserved as, as songwriters and, and as musicians. Well, you know, I was, I was disappointed in – so there was a confluence of events that happened uh, after that record with Daniel getting sick – uh, and being unable to tour, but the 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 real issue for me, uh, like I thought that record was a really extraordinary record, and it could have been, it could have been as successful as something like uh, OK Computer was, right. but it requ- it required belief um, from from people that were trying that were you know in companies to support it, and I think they so. As I told you, when we had that meeting in in uh, Beverly Hills in that little restaurant, um, vegan restaurant, of course, because Daniel was vegan at the time, 
Daniel said to me, he said, I want to make my version of Pet Sounds, which if you know that record, it's a very wild, complex, interesting, fantastic record, but it's not a pop or a rock record, straight up rock record. And so I went into the label and I talked to the guys and I said, so this is what Daniel wants to do. And their response was like, yeah, yeah, okay. He can go and do this thing, but at the end, we'll send you back in. You can record a couple of rock songs and it'll be all great. And I was like, you know, he already, we've already had that discussion because Daniel and I had had that discussion because I'd said to him or he had said to me, one of the two is like, you know, they're going to send us back in to record a pop rock song and I'm not going to do that. I don't want to do that. So I was like, okay. And so I said, you know, he said he wanted it to be this, his artistic statement. So I went to the label and I said, this is what he wants to do. And they were like, yeah, yeah. So when we delivered the record, of course, that's what it was. And they said, okay, we're going to send you back in. And so they flew me back over to Australia and we recorded Pins in Your Needles, I think. And which was, you know, it's all right. It's not, it's, it wasn't, you know, Anna's song or it wasn't, you know, year 2000. It wasn't one of those that that's like, okay, this is the big rock song and, you know, whatever, you know. Um, so I, I was sort of, I was disappointed because, you know, they should have known and we should have all known that this is what the record was going to be and to support it like that. Like The Greatest View is a great single, right? There's nothing wrong with that as a single. It's It has challenges to the listener a little bit, but it's not, you know, it's got a killer chorus. It's got, a, you know, it takes maybe a little bit to get there, but there, you know, or Without You. Without You is a great song, right? All these things. Yeah. You could, if you believed in that record, you could have worked it in a way where it would have been successful. And I think they just kind of gave up before it even hit. And, you know, Diorama is one of those records that people come up to me on the street or at concerts or whatever, that if they know that record and they know who I am, they'll, they'll be effusive about it. It's like, this record changed my life or this record was oh, yeah. really important to me. You know, whereas I, I, I get that from a few other things, but Diorama is one of those ones that people really go out of their way to be like, you know what? This record was really amazing. And, and I think, yeah, it was. And if it had been, you know, promoted even half-assed in some ways, it would have been better. So I was sort of, I was sort of frustrated by that and, and disappointed because I thought the material was really great. And I thought that the, you know, the, the things that we came up with were really great and they just needed to be, you know, they weren't obvious. Like, radio singles are right so it wasn't an obvious yeah. thing a lot of the time but on repeated listen you know with enough promotion it would it could have got there and it could like you know okay computer is not an easy listen first time you go through it right but the you know right. perry watts russell who was at, at capital at the time just said we're going to work this record until it's successful and if he'd had that same kind of support i think it might have been as successful as that record but i think it would have been far more successful than than in America than it ended up becoming. Yeah, I mean and and like those and those songs were hits in Australia, but we had a different context for Superchair. We'd seen them grow up. We, you know, uh I think Australia as as a market maybe were we were along for the ride a bit more. And in America there was still the the teen band. Um unfortunately and and so when uh, when the when Atlantic was saying we're not, you know, this isn't the band that we we thought we were signing, it was kind of like it's their their opportunity to say we're going to reintroduce you to you know the North American audience, um, and yeah, for whatever reason that that just didn't happen, unfortunately. 
Yeah. Well, I think that if that was the case, then maybe they should have been more upfront about what their expectations were right from the beginning and said, no, you're not going to make this record. You're going to make this rock record. And then if that's successful, you can make this record. Yeah. If they, if they wanted to, do, if they were, if they were so inclined, then be honest about it. Be honest about what your expectations are right off the bat. And Daniel might've gone, oh, okay, I'll write this record for you. And then I'm going to go do my thing. Or, or not. I don't know. I don't know how it would have played out. But this is always the problem with, with assumption and with, with um, not, not being forthright about what your expectations are. Yeah. And, and you know what? Like even the, the B-sides for Diorama, uh, I love all of them. Like even Ramble and Pins in Your Needles, uh, so, you know, the songs that I suppose were oh, written. Yeah, Ramble. I'd forgotten yeah. about that one. <laughs> I mean, I- that Ramble was the song that that they wanted that Daniel wrote for the record label to as like this is it, try and write a hit here hit, this is it but I yeah it was Ramble um, and, Ramble you know, and Pins we tried we recorded them both at the same time I'd it's totally forgotten about Ramble that's really funny but I think they're still great songs um, yeah. in fact my favorite my favorite if not my favorite Silverchair song is Asylum. Uh, which is a diorama B side as well. Oh, okay. Do you remember that one? No. It's another piano. Um, it's just Daniel on the piano again. Okay. Like after years. Right. Oh, that's crazy. I, I love that song. Yeah, no, he, um, he obviously couldn't go on the album because you already had a, a solo piano song. Yeah. But yeah, like, so even the songs that he didn't think were very good and was writing under duress, I, I, I think he was just he was just a master of writing a song uh during that period especially yeah i mean he's a great writer so it's not going to be i i'm disparaging about about those two they weren't they i'm not saying that they were bad but it was it was just not like it wasn't what they wanted they wanted year 2000 or they wanted something along that line to be you know the big rock you know solitaire rock hit you know k rock you know, 106.7 song. Right. And, and Daniel was just like, I don't want to do that. Yeah. And, yeah. and our radio formats, you know, were, especially then were very different to what they would have been in the States. Yeah. Well, uh, I'll, I'll let you go um, shortly. Um, I just wanted to ask uh, if you're working on anything at the moment that you wanted to mention. Um, well, um, so uh, I just, I, so the projects that I've done recently, there's a, um, uh, a great artist named Della Nila that has released her album. Uh, she's a New York-based artist. Um, sort of, it's bandy, but also electronica sort of thing. There's a French-Canadian artist named Elsienne, who is a, she's a, an amazing sort of atmospheric singer. And we're recording now. Uh, we're on to you know, six, six or seven songs. Um, that's in process at the moment. Uh, there's a Toronto band called Imperial Ashes, that I'm working with and uh, uh, an Irish family sort of tra- trad folk band. And we're doing a crossover Irish uh, folk and uh, rock record. The band's called Leahy, L-E-A-H-Y. Oh, wow. So a number of things. Uh, yeah. A few mixes and a couple projects maybe in the fall that might be really interesting. But we'll, Fantastic. So yeah, I can't really talk about them because the deal's not done yet. Yeah, as always. As always. Well, that's fantastic. Um, thank you so much, David, uh, for for chatting with me today. Um, I'm sure it's getting late over there. You probably need to have some dinner. 
I, I really can't thank you enough for uh, for coming on the show. Oh, it's my pleasure. I, I hope I've given you enough material to work with. Oh, oh, definitely. This is it's been an absolute pleasure. And if I ever get around to doing a tool dream theater, a Coheed in Cambria, or a podcast, um, I'll hit you up again because I'm I could I could talk about those bands <laughs> just as much. Well, there you go. Do a deep dive into all those, and that'll be a career for you. And uh, exactly, that's the. <laughs> and you know, uh, I feel like I'm perfectly placed for Sewerchair. I'm Australian. I grew up with them. It's a little bit different with um, some of these other bands, but. Yeah, it's been, it's been a, a real pleasure talking to you. Thanks. And for me too, Daniel. Thanks so much. All right. Well, uh, you have a nice night and uh, I got a <laughs> right. day job. <laughs> All right. You take care. <laughs> Bye-bye. Cheers. And I know how you feel in the night. Do you know how I feel in the night? Because I know. Well, there you have it, the one and only David Bottrell. What a blast that was. Again, I want to thank David for coming on the show and sharing his knowledge with me and his time. David is on Instagram at David Bottrell Official, and his website is davidbottrell.com. That's Bottrell with two T's and two L's. The artists that David mentioned working with currently are Delania, which is D-E-L-A-N-I-L-A. He also mentioned Elsian, which is E-L-S-I-A-N-E, Imperial Ashes, which is spelled how it sounds, and Leahy, L-E-A-H-Y. So go and check them out wherever you get your music from. As for me, I am hard at work on the next episode, though being in lockdown here in Melbourne has slowed things down a little, what with having a little one running around. So I might be taking another break to get that happening, but as always, I'll be active on the social, so make sure you're following me. And as always, if you've enjoyed the podcast, please tell anyone who might be interested, rate, review, subscribe, email me, follow me on social, share the content and tag me in it. That really helps spread the word. All the info is in the episode description. Thanks again for listening. See you next time. Baby.